0: Welcome to Plan B Security with your host, Mike McIntosh. This is episode two from Plan B Security. And I just want to say I will do a better job editing this one. The outpour of support has been absolutely phenomenal and something I completely did not expect at the level that I've received it. So thank you for everybody who took the time to listen to the first one and really provide some valuable feedback. I will be taking every little bit of that and build that into the program now this episode is going to be sort of a continuation of the back to school uh which was last week's episode and this one's going to be focusing around the phases of a security program so i've broken it down amongst three different phases phase one i like to call the era of afterthought so it's the time when a company is just starting or they're just not focused on security at all and it's really just bolted on after the fact the second one is the bowling alley principle so it's you know a a smaller company or a medium-sized company, they're going through some internal growth. Now they are forced to start caring about it from some sort of compliance perspective. Um, And you know, how do they start doing things the right way? And then the third one is gonna be what I call the completionist charter. So the last one is those really mature companies that are doing things the right way. Like this is the golden standard that everybody really wants to work towards. Now these learnings are things that I've experienced over the past 20 years of my career. So I started off at a very small company. Um, it was like a little mom and pop computer repair shop and networking was my thing. So that's what I did. I made house calls, ran networks, configured routers, hooked up, you know, ISDN lines and, and all that type of stuff, as well as, you know, getting malware off of people's computer and, and trying to do all the cleaning. My next company, which was my first official job when I was 18 was You know, at this company, a very large telecom company with over 100,000 people running in some support organizations and doing some troubleshooting um, and helping get enterprise level customers back online. Um, Through that, I actually discovered a few bugs across the network uh, where I'd be doing a lot of network uh, monitoring. Uh, You know, think of very large scale TCP dumps or like IP flows. And, you know, I identified a bug on um, some Juniper network equipment and and I tried to get somebody to say, hey, like, you know, there's a problem here and nobody wanted to listen. And I was very persistent and I, I collected all the logs that I needed to. Um, I started getting and asking for more access so I could prove it out. And I got access to some network recorders and I was able to record the traffic across different types of uh, accessing devices and, and I was able to pinpoint it for them. And when I presented it to them, they're like, holy crap you're totally right we're sorry we didn't listen and it actually ended up turning into being a a good job offer for me Um, so I transitioned internally and I moved over to the security team and that was one of the first times that I've really felt like wow I do know what I'm doing in my career you know Um, so I worked there for a few years and I moved over to uh, another company uh, where I started a security program they were about 600 people and they just IPO'd. So they had to worry about things like SOX, Sarbanes Oxley. And I had no experience around that. So it's like great learning opportunity for me. Start learning some of the compliance side while still continuing to build out a lot of the security pieces. Now, you know, one of the things I didn't really get into, and if you know me, you know, I'm I'm a developer at heart. You know, maybe in one of the future episodes I'll get into my my background a little bit more, but you know, it's like I loved coding. I loved infrastructure. I loved running websites and, you know, DNS was one of those things that I just, I knew it inside and out. So, you know, when it came to that bigger environment, that bigger picture, that bigger infrastructure piece, I, I could really marry, you know, what the DevOps teams were trying to do at the time to what the developers were trying to accomplish with what the business needed to stay safe and secure. And that's really what helped me be you know, successful there. So it was a very small team and and while I was there, I tried to grow into security team, but you know, we, we really, we couldn't, it would just, it wasn't something that was really being invested in at the time, even though there was absolutely a need for it. So one thing they did have was a group called the security champions. So this was a group of people that were really interested in security and they were kind of running with it before I got there. It kind of became my little function to run. These were people in different parts of the team where I can go and say, hey, I need help with X, Y, Z, whether it was on the QA side, whether it was on the um, engineering side, software development, on the infrastructure, you know, within sales marketing, within legal compliance, whatever it was. So it it was a really nice way of being able to kind of spread my workload as just one person amongst the rest of the team, and do it in a way where people are responsible for security who also are responsible for whatever the output of that team is. I then took a leap of faith into a very small company, which was literally just a startup. Um, And I was like employee 13 or something like that. And when I started there, it was, there was literally nothing in place. So I ended up taking on that role of, uh, you know, your IT staff. And I remember rolling out the very first Chromebox for having, you know, our company meetings because we were remote first company, but this was, you know, over 10 years ago even. And then you know going a little bit further i wore the hat of you know trying to figure out our internal security program building some software in-house to monitor the laptops and then i was contributing into the platform and core product itself and rolling out features for a lot of the customers that i joined calls for and then even doing some of the first couple you know sales which was phenomenal you know you start to really build a network And you start to learn a lot about some of the folks and the companies that you're working with and how they view security. Because, you know, as a security company, you're pitching your vision to them, but it may not match them. So if you're a vendor, you need to be able to pivot to match their idea. And sometimes you have a product and the ones that are normally successful follow this kind of model is you have a product that can adapt to any type of security vision. And that was exactly what we had. Now, I tried to do my own thing for a little bit, but that didn't really pan out, and family life kind of demanded a little bit more of a a steady income, well, you know, more predictable, and, and, you know, (laughs) when you got kids, it's hard. So I went to a company, which was a very big social network, and, you know, it was my opportunity to really learn how to do things right. The reason I say that is because there was an FTC consent decree in place, and if you remember from last episode, that's one of the things that we talked about. They become very restrictive and require additional audits and to make sure that you're doing the right thing and taking care of the data that, that you're holding on to and that you're really doing what you say you're going to be doing. We almost had a green light to essentially do everything the right way. And the best part about that was is we could really engineer real secure solutions and get the rest of the folks to get on board with it. We were pre-IPO at the time when I joined and then you know we went through that transition and we got to see the company grow. So not only did certain regulations start to kick into play and we had to change some of the processes but we were able to really engineer the real solutions to usher in this this new era of company so before i bore you with all the narrative let me just jump right into it that phase one the security as an afterthought program you know like this is the era of company that it's a startup it is brand new and all they care about is their product and finding a market fit getting to market is going to be your make it or break it so putting extra security controls in place you know like slowing down the development pipeline for code scanning and stuff like that is is not going to fly here Um, they really need to be able to make sure that they can iterate on the product as fast as possible to make sure that that market fit is being found and that customers can actually use the product in this phase you'll probably be lucky if there's even an it team maybe some engineering staff if not they often outsource it so if you are the one that's wiring things together just to make it work think of this as like your node code solutions nowadays it'd be like a zapier a Tray, or kato make those solutions where you can just click and authorize access into your corporate documents or your email or whatever to, to automate some of these workflows you're trying to speed yourself up but think about all the risk that's being introduced here too And when you have a very small team, there's probably nobody monitoring any of this. Some other risks that usually get introduced at a company where security is an afterthought is around access to third-party tooling. Have you ever realized how many people actually accept terms of service on behalf of a company, even when they don't have signing authority? There are a few clients that I've consulted with where they either became a party to litigation or had some sort of financial burden as a result of unfair terms. And this was all done because some employee just clicked on some, hey, cool, I wanna use a third party service without anybody reviewing it. So regardless, if you don't wanna focus on product security, make sure that you have your procurements or your finance and your legal teams all in communication with each other to have a very clear policy in place. Another risk that that does introduce is around shadowed IT services. So think of an exited employee, somebody that, you know, was offboarded and now they still retain access to that third party tool and all the data within it, even though they shouldn't because it was never deprovisioned correctly. If it's outside the scope of your IT team, good luck managing it. And one of the last trends that you start to see in this security as an afterthought is the everyone has access to everything, not just everything that they need. And what this leads to is, you know, the, the the true understanding that product owners and engineers, sales and even your executives, they need to read data, understand the difference between how the product was intended to be used and compare it to how it's actually being used because maybe you need to pivot on your vision for the product. But remember that data is the product and data is what makes the company valuable. That's what people are going to be going after from the adversary perspective. One of the risks of continuing in this way is similar to what we read about last week when the FTC filed a motion against Twitter for not protecting the data by allowing customers and employees to use the same type of login and tooling to access data on the back end. Now while this is great for startups it's really bad for scaling corporations looking to grow outside their initial markets If somebody's looking for a SOC 1, SOC 2, an ISO 27K1, um, HIPAA certification or FedRAMP certifications, they're gonna start running into some issues if this is their security program one reason why startups don't mind going this route is if they do suffer a breach guess what they'll either pivot their product or change their name and continue to operate until they find their market fit it's not very costly to rebrand especially when not many people know who you are so if you find yourself in a company like this one of the best ways of implementing a security program is by starting on the corporate side if leadership does not want you to negatively impact the speed and velocity of your engineering program then you can focus on hardening your employees by rolling out mfa or focusing on your business critical tooling like your uh, collaboration tools, your communication tools, your Slack's, your Gmail's, your Microsoft Office 365's, your Jira's, your Trello's, so on and so forth. A lot of these documents that are being shared, especially for early companies, if your plans and your designs and your new features that you're rolling out do get leaked, that could be detrimental to the success of your launch. A good security professional will be able to pivot through different areas and challenges. So instead of focusing on the application security and the infrastructure hardening side of of an early stage startup, maybe focusing on the corporate security to data privacy and the physical security side of things is a place where you can provide direct value. Also use this as an opportunity to truly build out your asset inventory, whether that's your uh, virtual assets like your domains. You want to make sure that they're not going to expire. You want to make sure that your certificates are being rotated correctly and that they're being paid for. You want to make sure that your billing and your financing for things is through maybe a PO process or on a credit card that has enough of a balance and is not expiring soon. Set up alerts on those so you can keep track of those. Um, The business continuity piece is really important for startups because if if your business is just launching and it crashes, nobody's going to want to use it. You burned your integrity. And then also include your physical assets. You don't have to go into class A, class B, class C yet. Think your laptops, your monitors, your keyboards, your mice, and things like that that people need. But definitely focus on, are they being managed correctly? Meaning, do they have full disk encryption? Do they have screen lock? Does the screen time out when they walk away? Do they have strong passwords? And while this is not a complete list, this is a few ways that you can continue to drive security impact when the business is trying not to impact their velocity. The next in our series to talk about is going to be that phase two, that bowling alley principle. Usually by phase two, the company has matured enough to start to grow the security team a little bit more. And because a lot of the foundational work you've done on the corporate side is already complete, now you can start focusing and working with and enabling the engineering team to be more safe, more secure, without compromising their velocity. The reason I call it the bowling alley approach is because think about going bowling. You can throw the bowling ball, it might go in the gutter, it might hit the pins. It's a 50-50 chance unless you really know what you're doing. But what this approach is about is really putting up those gutter guards so that way you can't get a gutter ball. These gutter guards come in a lot of different forms. Think about it from the engineering side where you could have a Terraform module managing your DNS. Terraform is an open source service that you can go ahead and run that allows you to make configuration files instead of having to log into a website directly to change the configuration. It gives you a little bit more stability, consistency, um, business continuity in the event that the service goes down or crashes and you need to change providers to something else. Um, all your configuration is saved in a file often that's committed up into github which is a place where you can store share and collaborate on these configurations as well as well as any other type of coding language so for dns and terraform think about creating a module where you can actually monitor for dangling dns now dangling dns is probably one of the most prolific dns related security issues that you'll run into so going back to that example from earlier somebody registers for a third-party provider service that you have no idea and if it's a hosting provider maybe they're trying to point example.company.com to it the employee in order to use dns would be required to go to your module and point example.company.com to that hosting provider's ip address or cname record which is a, a way of redirecting traffic within the dns um, services now let's say that that service is no longer being used by the internal employee and people start to forget about it because they left the company or they transitioned internally and it starts to lose ownership. If an attacker realizes that example.company.com is available to claim, because it's already pointing to that service provider, a lot of times all they have to do is just sign up for service and claim that because it's already configured and already validated. Now by doing that, the attacker controls the website, meaning that they can start doing malicious things with customer traffic because it's coming from a company trusted domain. There's a few different ways we can solve this, but one of them is using this DNS Terraform module. Whenever Terraform is being run for any change in the environment, it performs what they call a plan. The plan is checking for the current state that it knows about and the new remote state, which the author is intending to change it to. So not only can you introduce a gating mechanism here where you're looking for this IP address that they're pointing it to of an untrusted or an unauthorized hosting provider, which then you can have that continued conversation with the author of the pull request. You can also attempt to automate it using a null resource object. Something like a null resource allows you to attach a local exec provisioner, which allows you to run arbitrary commands. In this scenario, we might write a Python or a curl command in order to call that web page that the DNS entry is pointing to. Once fetched, you can go ahead and grab certain types of payloads or tokens on the web page or look at certain types of HTML elements or any type of links going back to maybe the privacy policy page. And once you notice that they start to change, maybe there's an alert that you would set up to let you know. Another good Terraform example is maybe creating a module for locking down resources like S3, um, cloud-hosted contents, and automatically removing the ability for the public to view them. Switching gears back to the corporate side, a few controls you can put in place include turning off the ability for outside users to message your employees through something like Slack and Teams without an explicit approval. Also take a look into preventing employees from being able to share documents publicly on the web. For example, with Google Workspace, anybody that changes the permission setting of a Google Doc can allow it to be shared publicly on the web, allowing unauthorized and anonymous access, which then you'll have a hard time tracking down who the anonymous user was on the application security side a great place you can make a lot of progress is by creating shared coding libraries these libraries will be for generic functions and very common functions such as authentication authorization and audit logging if there is one way that you want them to be able to accomplish something provide it to them this is one of the best safety nets that you can ensure it also gives you a way of having one place to make a change in the event that it's needed without having to touch each one of the individual code bases, depending on your environment. So if you're looking for something to do, perhaps think about creating a library that would do sanitization on user-supplied input. This is a great way to prevent eye doors or indirect object references, which is one of the OWASP top 10 for security issues. An IDOR is often seen in URL paths and query strings where it's referenced as an ID, a slug, or a name. An attacker that modifies this value can possibly gain access to an alternate record that they are not an owner of due to the lack of validation. So when you get some time, try to reflect and see if this is the type of company where you're at, and if these are some ways that you can drive some security impact. And last but not least, it's what I call the completionist charter that phase three of like that ultimate golden security standard this one can go one of two ways it's either going to be very policy heavy or very paranoid heavy now what do i mean by that security paranoia it was where literally everything gets locked down and you have that one person or that one small team that says hey you can't get access to anything and if you need it it's it's us it's like a power hungry team and they become a bottleneck you do not want this to become your program while certain environments may require it, depending on the level of confidentiality uh, as related to government, for example, maybe, but for the majority of other companies, you wanna be more on the policy side. The policy side provides you a few things. Number one, it provides you smart defense. For every policy that you've written, you can make a clear case that you've truly thought and understood the risk associated with that policy in the functions that you're enabling or disabling now people hear policies and they're like oh no pump the brakes that's going to slow us down a good policy builds on the bowling alley principles creating those guardrails to enable the team to do what they need by telling them how to do it or what not to do where friction does get introduced is the policy exception process which makes sure you have one in place now i hope you're sitting down for this next part the example I like to use to drive this completionist charter is a little crazy to some people, but I think it's a perfect way of describing it by enforcing policies which require non-fishable MFA factors like FIDO2, WebAuthn, um, through like the use of passkeys, Ubi keys, Touch IDs, and Windows Hello, which then a remote attacker would need physical access in order to activate in addition to users not being able to install software on their computer, having some sort of endpoint detection response process in place, whether that's um, monitoring for pre-fail, mid-fail, post-fail, where your pre-fail is before compromise. This is being able to track where something was downloaded from on the web, whether it was an email or some website or copied from a uh, USB storage device to your mid-fail, which is active process monitoring during execution and the detection of circumvented binary block listing. And then you have your post fail as well, which is the identification of what happened after it executed. So you're looking for signs of persistence, you're using your response tooling like CrowdStrike RTR or Google rapid response to grab memory, uh, network isolate the device, or perform some remote forensics on it. Now, what does all this sum up to? If you're securing a device, you're securing the credentials, and you're securing the environment, your security awareness training significantly changes. Right now, the majority of companies are probably out there telling people, don't click on links, don't respond to people you don't know, and the list goes on. But the psychology behind it is one of two things. People are curious, and they're gonna click the link. Or two, they're trying to remain productive, or provide support, and they're gonna take action on that email. Build the program in a way, it doesn't matter if they click the link or not. It's what they do after that happens. Can you detect and secure the account if they put their credentials in? The answer should be yes, the account should be secure no matter what and secured through non-fishable MFA. If they attach an Excel file or a CSV filled with a bunch of social security numbers, can you detect that and block that from being sent? The answer should be yes. The same thing should be true for the device first that device should always be patched and secured from any known vulnerabilities on their operating system or within the software that they're using to access data. Now, while unlikely for most organizations, there is a possibility for O days, also known as zero days to be exploited on a system. It essentially just means that the vendor or the supplier is unaware that there's a vulnerability within their software and that somebody did find an exploit for it and that no patches available. This is where I refer you back to your risk matrix. Is your organization likely to be attacked by an O-day, Or are you worried about a drive-by where an O-day gets exploited because your employee was at the wrong place at the wrong time? Now let's take it a little bit further. If they happen to click on an attachment, which is an executable, or a link which downloads an executable, it should not execute on that device. If it does happen to execute, you should be able to detect where that binary came from what the binary did when it ran and then what happened afterwards you should also have ability to respond remotely whether you need to lock the device wipe the device or perform forensics on the device and this is where the policies start to come back in if you have a risk matrix in place saying that your low risk malware your medium risk malware and your high risk malware think ransomware for the high risk think potentially unwanted applications for the low risk in the event that one of them is detected what is the response mechanism Having this drawn out in a way that you can have your IT team or your security team respond effectively in the form of a runbook significantly reduces the exposure during an incident. And while I've debated this with a few, this is a far more effective policy than putting people through phishing trainings where they become reprimanded for engaging with things that they truly believe is actionable. This concept gave birth to the sophistication matrix, which myself and a coworker of mine presented at RSA in 2018. And again, in summary, this third phase is really the sum of everything that you started working on. It becomes the safety net, the training mechanism, the enforcement mechanism, the things you point to when you're panicking, and in their own way, they become the gutter guards that you've been looking for all along. And to send you off, just a little reminder, every company is different. Every company has its own threats and risks that they need to assess and understand only then can you really understand and build a true security program that fits exactly what it is that you're trying to protect and defend. A lot of times you're not gonna get it right first, but adopt the mindset of fail and fail fast. Learn how to communicate with your stakeholders and learn how to iterate as the business grows. And a few words of encouragement from our friend Pam Beasley and Jim Halpert. I think those might be empty. No, no, cause the ice melts and then it's like second drink. <laughs> second drink Ah. and with that thanks for tuning in to this episode of plan b security with me mike mcintosh